Before we get to doing it, I have to play okay. a clip for you really quick. Listen to this awesome clip. This is from the 2017 end of the year Jubilee episode 621. Here we go. Here's the clip. This is always a great one. And I had this idea <laughs> recently, and maybe I should tell you off there, but I'll tell you now. When we do hit 10 years, since we're close to that, right? I'll go back and I'll make a list of the just this category, oh. the best episodes from each year, and we'll let the listeners pick. The best of the best episodes. Uh, the best episode. What is the of best all time? episode of? And I, like, should we? I mean, we'd have to make it from the winners of this because it it kind of made it through the first round, right? And now we're into what was the best episode of the Sci-Fi Christian in the first ten years? Oh, that's a good one. Yeah. So watch. So watch for that is what I what I conclude. So I I said that back in 2017. Wow. And here we are. Profit. We're in the middle of it, which brings me. Oh no. Well, if it's this. the best of the best, I guess that's fine. Episode 981, The Best of the Best, Part 7, How Not to Change the World. You remember this one? I do. Welcome to the Sci-Fi Christian, bringing you theology at warp speed. I'm Ben Anderson. I'm Ben DiBono. We're back. Ben, hello. This is your episode. You well, actually, I don't know if you realize this. Yeah, this was part of a series. You were doing a, a series on aesthetics. Yeah, and I went back and looked to find out what won. And as as that clip continued, I would then read the five uh, choices for that year. Get this: four out of the five best episodes of the year that were voted on by the listeners were all from that series. That's so, amazing. And Sturgeon's Law was the the fifth that wasn't a part of that. So you've got theology of aesthetics. Question of God, how not to change the world, and aesthetics and the transcendent. I feel like, you know, TV shows kind of have those first couple of years where they're getting going and then they're super good for a few seasons and then it starts to peter off and it just goes on and on until nobody's watching anymore. Uh, I feel like maybe 2016, 2017 was our great seasons and now we're, now we're, whoa, <laughs> we're whoa. petering off into you, oblivion. You think so? No, I mean it's it's certainly possible. You think you think it's getting worse? No, I mean I just say we had some great stuff in those yes. years. Oh yeah, when we looked back last time, at best of the best part six, and and some of the episodes that were up for grabs for best episode of the year that year, there are some that I've really loved, and I did like that series. Uh, so, do you want to say anything about how to not how not to change the world, or do you just want to dive in? Let's just dive in. All right. So this was episode five hundred and sixty-seven. How not to change the world. We released it on June twenty-seventh, twenty seventeen. Ben, take it away. Episode 567, How Not to Change the World. Welcome to the Sci-Fi Christian Bringing You Theology at Warp Speed. I'm Ben Anderson. I'm Ben DiVono. You had one job. I know. I usually edit out anything we say before episode blah 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 no, I understand. Uh, but I'll, I'll probably keep this up because you actually said are you ready and while I'm looking at something else I said yeah I'm ready <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> like I, I knew I was recording right but I did not have the music queued up so sorry about that that's okay I think it, it worked out I, I'm always ready to step in with yeah. my own rendition I love it if need be alright so a few weeks back we did an episode called the question of God. And that was episode 563. And you've already come back with a follow-up. It's well, yeah, we kind of needed a, a, a second part to that. Mm-hmm. We, we 
because you were even saying when we were recording, let's get to the application. And I was like, well, I, I, I want to do the application episode, but that's going to be its whole own yeah. conversation. Uh, and this also the that one in turn was kind of a relative, not exactly a sequel, but a, we'll call it a cousin of uh, the theology of aesthetics, which was episode five fifty six, which will eventually loop back around to. So I'm envisioning at least one more installment in all of this in a couple months down the road that will kind of bring us full circle back to the theology of aesthetics. Perfect. So the question of God, I think there was a lot of ideas flying around in that one. Uh, And so just to make sure everybody's all caught up, I thought I would just do a quick recap here. We all like, you know, previously on the theology of aesthetics. Okay, so I'm going to do the way that I wrote this out. It's just a quick recap of walking us through the development of pre-modernism to modernism to post-modernism to where we are now, uh, because post-modernism played very large into that conversation is going to continue to do so throughout this. Okay. So pre-modernism, you have this blurring of the line between the natural and the supernatural, and I always think of Dante's universe is kind of being the best example of this like for dante uh and c.s lewis's book the discarded image really describes this really really well have you read that one is that the one i bought for you i don't think so maybe no though no, that was a i got you one. the paradise lost one the preface to paradise Lost. no you the one you bought me was written by somebody else it was about the influence of dante on c.s lewis's thought okay so i'm familiar with discarded image because didn't our friend jordan yeah. He's the one that first told me about it. Right. It's really good. It's not just about Dante, but he essentially walks through the way that the pre-modern saw the world. And it's essentially, you know, up there in the stars, the stars are the heavenly spheres, and you can go up there and you're going to find God. And with Dante, you can go down and you can find the devil. And it's not necessarily that Dante meant all of that exactly literally, but in the pre-modern mindset, you have this blurring between the lines where supernatural things explain natural things and then there's not a hard delimiter between the two so then modernism comes along and we discover things like science and rationality and all of that and it turns out that that's not quite the case you get your telescope out at night and you look up at the stars and you don't see very many angels flying around and this has the effect of opening a pandora's box on pre-modernism because it throws all of that stuff into question and if all of a sudden we know that the dantean universe is not true in a literal sense what does that mean for the rest of religious truth so when you don't have this hard line between the supernatural and the natural between religious truth and say scientific truth and then the modern world comes along and it proves all of the the natural side all the scientific side untrue what does that have to say about the natural or the supernatural side it has this cascade effect that comes with it and so it winds up throwing everything into question and in turn though that has the effect of ultimately opening a pandora's box onto modernism because if modernism throws all of pre-modern religious assumptions into questions all of a sudden we come up with a crisis of meaning because reason and the scientific method can't explain everything it can only explain this whole natural side and it can provide us with 
<clears throat> biological reasons for why we might have an inclination towards one degree of morality or another or evolutionary reasons. It can explain things that way, but it can't. It's very bad at giving meaning. It's very bad at giving value structure is some of the terminology that we've attached to it. And this is essentially what Nietzsche was describing with his death of God. And we, I quoted that section um, in the question of God, and I won't requote it here, but the gist of that is that uh, when Nietzsche de- declares the death of God, that wasn't a triumphant statement. That was a recognition that we have, by undoing pre-modernism, by undoing religious thought, we have killed God and we will never get his blood off of our hands. It's a, it's a recognition that pre-modernism gave us a value structure and we don't have that anymore. And so what do we do with that? And so the result of that is that there is a silence at the center of modernism, and that silence is what I've referred to in the last episode as the question of God. In other words, what then is at the center if we don't, if we no longer have the naive assumptions of pre-modernism that the this this religious truth is simply true? If that's been the possibility has been opened that that might not be true. And that all of it is thrown into question. It opens a silence at the center of our thought. And how you deal with that silence is what I was trying to lead us into contemplate at the question of God. So maybe now everybody can go re-listen to that episode and it'll actually make sense what I was trying to say. And what I see, broadly speaking, are three main responses to that silence. The final two of which were our main focus in the question of God and will continue to be our, our main focus today. So the first sil- the first response to this question of what does it mean that we have killed God, that we have torn down the tenets of pre-modernism, what does that mean? The first response I would call neo-modernism, and this would be uh, something you see a lot in the new atheists, people like Christopher Hitchens or Sam Harris, if you're familiar with them. And essentially, uh, and I don't, all of this is going to be generalizations, so we're just going to have to deal with that, <laughs> that because obviously it can't be perfectly accurate. We don't have time to do all that. But it's that response is to downplay or deny that problem. In other words, the Nietzschean crisis wasn't a real crisis, or at least not to the degree that it was, and that what happened by opening up this question and, and delving into the question of God in this way and this absence of value structure, it had the effect of derailing the modernist project. And so modernism never actually got to finish what it was trying to do and to build because we all got obsessed by this kind of Nietzschean uh, crisis that was out there. There's a very simple way of putting it. But for example, I, I quoted somewhat extensively from Stephen Hicks' book explaining postmodernism last time, which I, I would highly, highly recommend that book. Uh, but he is, I don't know what his religious uh, beliefs are. He doesn't really go into that. But he, I think, is very close to this camp. One of the things he, in fact, he says that very explicitly, that all of this just caused modernism to all of these questions that eventually led into postmodernism uh, weren't real questions, and they knocked modernism off of the track that it was on, and we need to get back to that. So that's neo-modernism. We're not terribly concerned with them, uh, but you need to know that they're out there. The second response, then, is postmodernism, which takes the Nietzschean crisis seriously. Postmodernism developed up through uh, Marx and uh, up on the left through Marx, on the right, um, 
well, through fascism on the right. That's part of why postmodernism as it stands now is primarily a left-wing phenomenon because the right-wing version really blew up and failed so spectacularly that there was really no ambiguity about it, whereas the left-wing version in, in the Soviet Union uh, died a very slow death. I mean, you think about like what happened with right-wing uh, response to this in the form of fascism it's like the tanks roll into nazi germany and there's the concentration camps well there goes your whole moral claim and so the whole thing on the right ver right wing version of of this sort of um postmodern response fell apart uh very spectacularly the soviet union died a very slow death and and for a long time it wasn't clear what the atrocities were outside of russia and by the time those were finally con confirmed, the left-wing version of postmodernism had managed to pivot itself from this kind of Marxism into postmodernism as it is today, which is if Marxism saw um, economic conflict and class conflict as being at the center of his thought, postmodernism pivoted that into things like religion and race and gender and sexuality and on and on it goes. And so you have these constant states of oppression because what's at the center of the postmodern universe is nothing. There's a state of conflict and paradox and oppression. And it's a very scary thing to look at if there's anybody who was a purely postmodernist they would go insane because there's absolutely nothing there at the center it's anti-reason it's anti-science it's anti-religion it's anti-everything it just sees conflict and oppression and power as being what drives history and what drives human relationships and that's why you see things happening uh, on college campuses in the way you do because after communism started to fail, that's where the postmodernists developed was into the academy. And they started hijacking all this. And we see the fruit of this now 50 years later. So that's on the left. On the right, I mean, right-wing postmodernism is making its own sort of comeback in the form of neo-nationalism. It has some catching up to do uh, because it hasn't had these 50 years to kind of develop. Uh, but it's getting there. It, it's it's giving it the old college try. Uh, that's part of what's so frightening about the state of politics today is that for a long time, the postmodernists have ruled the left-wing political sphere uh, across the globe. And as the right-wing version of postmodernism starts to uh, take hold of the right-wing political sphere, you essentially have politics devolving into Godzilla versus Mothra, where you have two uh, seemingly opposite philosophies duking it out but they both have this cancer at the core of them where they don't believe in anything so where left-wing postmodernism goes into this human conflict and oppression and all of that is being at the center and we're going to reinterpret history in terms of power struggle and oppression and all of that right-wing postmodernism goes more in terms of uh taking things like identity national identity um uh, ethnic identity in the case of of the you know original recipe back in the 1930s less so today thankfully but culture country nationalism and it says that's what we're going to make the center of our value system because you don't have anything at the center so you have to create your own value system as a human and so the right-wing version of postmodernism creates that around things like nation and ethnicity and culture. The left-wing postmodern version creates that value structure around things like oppression and justice, or so-called justice anyway, 
and power and tearing those things down. And what's really scary about them is that both of those things have a germ of truth. Like in an actual value structure, both of those things have a place. National identity has a place. Heritage has a place. Fighting oppression definitely has a place. But when you take those things out of an established value structure and you try and recreate a value structure around just those things, it goes very, very badly. And that's what happened with the Soviet Union is it was a value structure, an attempt to create a human value structure around things like justice. And it wound up killing 100 million people. And in the case of right-wing fascism, you tried to create a value structure around things like ethnic identity and national identity, things that when they're in their proper place are very good things and necessary to humans, and it wound up killing a lot of people because they're heresies. And what a heresy is is not a complete untruth. It's a truth that's taken out of context and, and made and taken too far. A heresy is a good idea taken too far, and that's what's gone on with postmodernism on the left and the right. And then finally, the third response then is what I've called Western orthodoxy. And I'm talking about all of this conversation and all of these episodes is, w- is within the context of Western culture, not because other cultures are irrelevant, but because that's, I mean, that's enough to try and bite off in, in one set of episodes. And it's what you're familiar with. Exactly. That's, that's I assume that virtually everyone we're talking to uh, is steeped in Western culture to one way or another. Well, I mean, even if that isn't true, you could only speak about what you know personally. Exactly. I think there, you know, there, there's, there'd be a lot of value in doing this, but this is the Western story. You know, we talk about the development from pre-modernism to modernism to post-modernism. That is the Western, that's the story of Western civilization. So Western orthodoxy would make the claim that modernism's claim to have killed God is overstated. In other words, yeah, modernism dealt a very major blow to orthodox belief, but it wasn't a fatal blow in the way that Nietzsche claimed it was, and that Christian truth, whether we mean that in a literal religious sense or whether we mean that more archetypally, and we've talked about archetypal truth, especially in the theology of aesthetics, is at the center of Western culture and is vital to human existence, and you don't dispense with that without grave consequences. And part of what we have with... so. In other words, Western Orthodoxy, those of us in that camp, whether we are religious or more in the archetypal Jungian sense, are all in agreement saying you do not get to invent your own value structure. There is a value structure, and it's contained in religious truth. Whether you take that truth literally or not, humans need that. And Western culture in particular, that truth is from Judeo-Christian values. Um this is why I think in theology of aesthetics, I brought up the whole debate about, well, is America a Christian nation? And that's the wrong question, because if we if we ask, is America a Christian nation in terms of orthodox be- religious belief, probably not. I mean, the founding fathers were by and large deists, but they were deists who recognized the archetypal truth of Christianity. That's why Thomas Jefferson rewrote the New Testament. He took out the miracles, and he kept the good stuff, at least that's what he— considered to be the good stuff. Why? Because he wanted this archetypal truth of Christianity. He recognized the founding fathers in the West, by and large, has always recognized this need for a value structure, and it's at the heart of Western civilization. And so the Western orthodoxy encompasses that range 
from people like Jordan Peterson, who I don't know what he believes, but he individually, but he speaks exclusively on the archetypal truth of Christianity and does so very, very eloquently. So he'd be on one end of the spectrum. And then somebody like Chesterton or C.S. Lewis or Tolkien, all people who valued Western civilization, but valued it because they recognized that it had this truth of the Christian value structure at the center of it, and that that's what made Western civilization thrive. And so that's what's at stake here, really, when we start talking about what's going on with postmodernism versus um, Western orthodoxy is what's at the center of everything. And if the answer is nothing, then what the postmodernists do, whether they're left, right, or whatever— go out and attempt to create their own value structures. And that's really scary because history tells us that when humans attempt to do that, a lot of people die. Or what's at the center is this Christian truth, this deep Western Christian truth that has built Western civilization that is at the center of what you see in Dante and Shakespeare and all of the great works of Western civilization, whether they be artistic or political or philosophical, they all have, they are all part of this project and that you don't get to just tear that down. And that if we go down the road of tearing that down, it's going to end very badly. So the stakes are very high. And that leads to the question of where we left off last time of what do you do? And this is a really important question to answer um, because we obviously have to do something mm-hmm. like you. You don't just look at that problem and then say, well, that sucks back to work. <laughs> uh, so but it's very important to understand, I think, not only what to do, but what not to do. And so that's why this episode is titled How Not to Change the World. Yeah, so this is good. So you laid the groundwork for two episodes to set the stage. And now here we are. How are you going to change the world or how are you not going to change the world? Right. So we'll get to what you should actually do, in my opinion. But let's talk about what not to do. So it's really, it scares me the more I hear it, whenever I see people talking about wanting to change the world, if you watch Silicon Valley, they do a great job of parodying this where you have all these tech companies talking about how their product is going to change the world. And it's, it's ridiculous. And it's, you know, we have this mindset though in our culture of go change the world, go change the world. This is really, that's a dangerous place to start because Changing the world is not necessarily mean that you are making it better. Okay, I, I don't want to derail you, but yeah, I'm thinking a lot of Christians. You know, you hear about. Let's talk about college age Christians. I can think about myself at that age. You don't necessarily know exactly what career you want, but right. you know you want to do something that's going to make an impact on the world. You know, impact the world for Christ, that kind of thing. Right. So, are you talking about that kind of thinking, or are you going? I'm talking about that mentality. So that mentality that yeah. there, I, I need to do something that's going to make a difference in the world. Yeah. And you think that's actually a negative. I think that mentality is good. I think we don't know what to do with it. Okay. 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 So I'm going to uh, lay out in this section of the episode three principles for why it's a bad idea to just take that and run with it. And this is why I hate commencement speeches because they're all essentially, you're so great, go change the world. And it's like, no, this is, you can do a lot of damage if you just set out to change the world in a naive way or uh, 
to put it in kind of the Christian version, like you said, go impact the world for Christ. Like, these are all good ideas, but let's remember that the road to hell is paved with good intentions. Or with, yeah, the road to hell is, is paved with good intentions. Like, you can set out to do good things and actually make them a lot worse. And what's scary about when people start talking about changing the world is that they tend to mean one of two things. They tend to mean that either they're going to go do it themselves, which is actually the safer option because they'll probably fail, and that usually winds up being a net benefit, or they mean we're going to go find a messiah to do it for us. And that part, the messianic thinking, I find is becoming more and more prevalent. I'll talk about that in a second. But the first principle I want to throw out there is what I've already said. Things can always get worse. So the fact that you are changing the world does not mean that you can change it better or that you are making it better. Most of the great world changers out there have made it worse. Like Adolf Hitler was a great world changer. <laughs> you know, he went and changed the world. Karl Marx changed the world. You know, there's 100 million people dead from the Soviet Union alone. Because Karl Marx went and changed the world. And before you start to think, well, of course Hitler changed the world in a bad way. He was a bad guy. Well, it's like, okay, but he didn't think so. You know, and Karl Marx didn't think so. And more to the point, in both of those cases, like, they had legitimate complaints. You know, Karl Marx looks at the at the oppression of workers, and he, he saw a legitimate problem. Like, that was a very real problem, the things he saw. The situation in 1920s Germany was an absolute nightmare. I mean, you go read the stories about uh, inflation alone, where the workers were getting paid three times a day in 1920s post-war Germany because the money that they would get paid in the morning would be worthless by night. That's how bad inflation was. Like, you had people getting paid in wheelbarrows full of cash and it's just ridiculous and you go look up the inflation rates and, and it's absurd and you had this very real problem germany needed somebody to come in and rescue their national identity that was a real need but having a real need is not enough like real needs can still be met in very evil ways you know karl marx saw a very real problem he came up with a solution that killed a hundred million people like, you know, the the cure can be worse than the disease. And so things can always get worse. And it's very important to keep that in mind. And you can do that on a smaller scale. Like, that's not just the Hitlers of the world to go out and do that. You, I mean, We've all probably experienced it in one way or either directly or from seeing somebody else where they see a problem and you charge in and you're going to fix it. And then you wind up making it worse. I mean, every husband out there has experienced this with your wife. Like, they, you, you see a problem with her, you try and go help her and solve it, you just make it ten times worse. Like, this is part of the human condition, is that you, things can always get worse. And so you need to realize that before you just charge out and change the world. Principle number two, messianic thinking rarely ends well. Messianic thinking is on the rise today, and I think that part of it is because we we intuitively recognize that we have become unmoored in the postmodern era, that we more and more are bought into this idea of this absence at the center of everything, and we're looking for somebody to guide us out of that. And I think it's very telling that the three most successful presidential campaigns in the last, say, decade or so 
have all had messianic tinges to it. And I'm talking about Barack Obama's, Donald Trump's, and Bernie Sanders. Now, obviously, Sanders didn't win, but he got a lot farther than anybody expected him to. All three of these campaigns, whether you like the candidate or not, that's not the point. They all had strong messianic tinges to them. I'm the guy who's going to make things better. And what's scary about that is that I feel like there's a large portion of us today where rightly and wrongly we recognize our helplessness, especially in the political sphere, and we go looking for that great man or great woman to go solve it for us. And that doesn't end well because messiahs will eventually let you down if they don't just turn out like a Hitler. You know, I think it's funny, and I'm not commenting on the politics one way or another, but like Ann Coulter was one of Donald Trump's biggest cheerleaders during the campaign, and she's going ballistic right now because he's not doing the things she wants him to do. Well, it's like, yeah, you, you could have seen this coming a mile away. That's what happens with the messiahs, especially political messiahs in a democracy because campaigning is one thing and actually governing is, is uh, something completely different. I mean, that's Robert Baratheon in Game of Thrones, right? It's like it's one thing to win the, 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 the crown. It's a whole other thing to actually rule. And that's the story of uh, Trump. That's the story of Obama. That's the story of so many politicians, especially in today's age, uh, where ruling is a whole different ballgame. Um, and unfortunately campaigns are in a democracy and especially in our media heavy age are designed to give in to messianic thinking because what do you think is going to be a more successful campaign? I am going to bring hope and change. I'm going to make America great again. We're going to rescue things from where they are or you know what? There's only so much a president can do, so I'm going to go in for four years and I'm going to do my best, but at the end of it, there's going to be a lot of compromise because that's the only way you're ever going to get anything done. I'm going to compromise left and right on my agenda because there's no way that I'm going to get everything through. You're probably going to be disappointed, uh, but I'm going to I'm the best option you got. Like one of those, that's a very honest campaign and it's going to lose every single time because we're so primed now to be search for messianic thinking and it's really scary because i think that there we've gotten so used to this and that's so much of what all these protests are is going out there and saying we want someone to come and save us it's like that's really dangerous thinking to go down and it's good in the sense that they re- people recognize their own individual helplessness but that's a horrible place to start so you've got to ditch the messianic thinking But maybe more to the point when it comes to changing the world is you got to realize that you are a mess and that your efforts to change the world are probably not destined to be terribly successful. And this takes a lot of humility because we want to think that we can charge out and be the one who makes things different. Maybe not on that global scale, but I can go make things different. I can be the one who makes an impact for Christ. I can can change things on a, a... a major level. Um, I'm in the very early stages of working on a video series that I want to do on Dante. Uh, I call it the gospel according to Dante. And I'm going to have, it's going to be like 12 parts and a couple introduction ones and then 10 points of how I think Dante, what Dante teaches us. And one of the points that I want to talk about in that series, and don't go hold your breath because it's 
a long way away. Like I, I have a lot I want to do with it and I want to do it right. So it might be a couple, you know, a year or so before I get it out there. But one of the points I want to make that I think you can learn from Dante is this idea that nothing is more fun than going to hell. Like this is one of the central tenets of Dante is that people in hell in Dante's hell are by and large suffering, but they had a great time getting there. You know, and you think of uh, Francesca and Paolo in, in the circle two, the lustful, and like they have this great affair and they're still living it up in hell. And there's the guy in circle six who he has fire and brimstone raining down on him and he's flipping off God and he's cursing God. And it's like there, there's this, this joy almost this sick, demented joy in Dante of these people who enjoyed going to hell and that they are not the exceptions. Like you think about your own life and we all have these tendencies where if you just gave into some of your tendencies and you, you know exactly what they are, you could destroy your life and have a really good time doing it. And so you got to realize that when you start thinking about, oh, how am I going to go change the world? Like that part of you is out there and you don't just get to ignore that. I think that's part of what Jung meant when he started talking about making peace with your shadow self is, is making peace with this destructive force within you and that you have the capacity to create literal hell for yourself and for the people around you, you have the capacity to ruin your life and other people's lives and really enjoy doing it. And that ought to be a really humbling thing to realize when you start thinking about yourself as the great world changer. Because do you think that you as a human are going to be able to successfully suppress those impulses day after day after day? No, you're not. Do you think that and the more influence you get... The more you are out there changing the world, the more that those impulses are going to cause damage to the people around you. Like that That's just a fact. And until you deal with that, you're not prepared to change the world. The second thing here under you are a mess is that your capacity, even when you are acting out of good faith, your capacity to have things blow up in your face is very, very high. We overvalue our ability to come up with solutions that actually make a difference. And I, you know, I brought up the example of, you know, of husbands trying to solve their wives' problems and just is a disaster. And every guy knows that story. But you see this all the time. It's like, you know, there's a book out that I haven't read, but I've read about it called when helping hurts and it's like the idea is that not all charity actually helps people and that's not a call to not be charitable we should absolutely be charitable and help those in need that's not the point of the book from what i've been able to gather uh reading about it but it's that to realize that you can have really good efforts and you can be doing things that feel good and are good but that actually have the net effect of hurting people and so you have to realize that and then I also wanted to quote uh, from an author I don't like a lot. Um, <laughs> so there's, well, a, there's a little disclaimer. There's a little disclaimer. Well, his name's Richard Rohr. He's a Catholic author. And I would put Catholics in air quotes because he seems to think Catholicism is a do-it-yourself adventure. And it's not. Uh, he is not very orthodox, but he wrote a very good book on men called Adam's Return. Um, so I don't like recommending Richard Rohr, but I'm going to recommend that book. But anyway, he outlines in there uh, – Five Hard Truths of Masculinity. And I wanted to bring those here because I think they're very relevant and they're very, very true. And uh, they're not just for, for men, but they apply to everybody, I think. Uh, and his five truths are life is hard. 
You are not important. Your life is not about you. You are not in control. And you are going to die. And it's like, those are sobering thoughts. And I feel like so often our attempts to change the world start from this opposite approach. If you're doing great and you can do it and you're amazing and go conquer the world. And it's like, that's exactly wrong. Like the more you listen to this kind of motivational poster crap, which is all over the place and these idiotic platitudes and you run out and you try and change things based on that, the more it's going to be a disaster. I think that before you can change the world, you have to swallow these bitter pills. You have to realize that you're a mess and you have these terrible tendencies. You have uh, this ability to make things just blow up spectacularly, and you have to realize those hard truths. Life is hard. You are not important. Your life is not about you. You are not in control. You are going to die. And it really goes back to what we talked about in the theology of aesthetics, of embracing suffering. And like, there's this sense that you know, we're going to run out and make everything better and we're going to have a great time doing it. Like That's not how it works. You know, you look at the the archetypical Messiah uh, is a guy who got nailed to a cross. Like, that's how you change the world. Who wants to sign up for that? You know, it's a, it's this ultimate embracing of suffering. And I think it's very telling that Isaiah talks about Jesus or uh, the Messiah as being a man of sorrows, like you know, compare that to our messianic presidential campaigns, like Jesus is just out there crying or something. It's like, that's not going to win many elections. It's this completely antithetical approach to how we try to change the world. And I think so many of our efforts are an absolute disaster because we start from this sickeningly cloying uh, platitude place of just trying to rev ourselves up. And this is even what we do. You think about like New Year's resolutions. That's how you try and do them. You try and psych yourself up and then you, you try and do really, really good. And then the emotion runs out and you fall flat on your face. Or I bet we've all experienced that with projects like, all right, I'm going to from now on do this and this and this and this and this. And I've got all these noble ambitions and I'm fired up about it today. And then a week later, you fall flat on your face because the platitudes don't get you very far far. And what does get you far is starting from that place of embracing suffering and accepting those hard truths. And so that's where we get into what do you actually do instead? Uh, anything I need to clarify? This is this it, point? everybody. This is the moment we've been waiting for. All right. <laughs> two episodes. <laughs> two and a half episodes in. And here is the practical application. What What do you do? What do we do with all this information? So Ben's been kind of scaring us with the reality, the truths about reality. Yeah, there's, there's you need a hard wake up call. Yeah, so we're woken up. Now what? Okay, I'm going to start with two statements, or two quotes, one significantly longer than the first, uh, that I think are guiding statements on this, and then I'm going to kind of break down what we should take from them. The first one sounds like a platitude, but it's not. It's from Mother Teresa. And she said, and this is, I think, one of the, if you really, like, you can just take this in and have it be a platitude, or you can really, really um, meditate on it and think about it. And it's extremely powerful if you do that. She said, if you want to change the world, go home and love your family. And then the second one, I'll break that. I want to get them both out there, and then we'll talk about them, is from... Uh, Lord of the Rings. 
So this is at the part where if you've only seen the movies or if you've read the book, uh, Frodo has been she lobbed and uh, Sam has the ring. That's the spider, right? Yeah, yeah. And so Sam has the ring and he hasn't rescued Frodo yet, but he's kind of wandering around Mordor. And so there's just a couple of paragraphs here I'm going to read. And I think this is of a, 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 a trilogy that's just full of great truth that maybe um, probably the best fictional summary of Western Orthodoxy or one of them. This might be the truest thing that Tolkien wrote. So he says, as Sam stood there, even though the ring was not on him, but hanging by its chain around his neck, he felt himself enlarged as if he were robed in a huge distorted shadow of himself. A vast and ominous threat halted upon the walls of Mordor. He felt that he had from now on only two choices, to forbear the ring, though it would torment him, or to claim it and challenge the power that sat in its dark hold beyond the Valley of Shadows. Already the ring tempted him, gnawing at his will and reason. Wild fantasies arose in his mind, and he saw Samwise the Strong, hero of the age, striding with a flaming sword across the darkened land, and armies flocking to his call as he marched to the overthrow of Barad-dûr, that Sauron's tower for those not up with their Tolkien lingo. And when he, when all the clouds rolled away and the white sun shone, and at his command the Vale of Gorgoroth, which is the plains of Mordor, became a garden of flowers and trees and brought forth fruit. He had only to put on the ring and claim it for his own, and all this could be. In that hour of trial, it was the love of his master that helped most to hold him firm. But also, deep down in him lived still, unconquered, his plain hobbit sense. He knew in the core of his heart that he was not large enough to bear such a burden, even if such visions were not only a mere cheat to betray him. The one small garden of a free gardener was all his need and due, not a garden swollen to a realm, his own hands to use, not the hands of others to command. Like that, like if you can get those two quotes, you get how to change the world. So let's talk about those. Well, wait a second. I just want to say something real quick before you move on. I, you could probably tell listeners I didn't prepare a lot for this episode, but I did get a quote ready for this okay. part. Okay. So, uh, and it's actually pretty similar to the Mother Teresa one. Could you read your Mother Teresa one again, and then I'll read my quote. If you want to change the world, go home and love your family. And the quote that I prepared is, if you want to make the world a better place, take a look at yourself and make a change. That's good. Who, M- Michael Jackson. <laughs> Two great figures. Yeah. So, so two, two of our great spiritual leaders. So just wanted to get that in there. So yes. now I don't, want anybody, I don't want any feedback saying I didn't do anything in this episode. <laughs> That's good. You, you brought Michael Jackson into the conversation. Right. So go ahead. What were you about to say? So uh, what I love about that section in Lord of the Rings where Sam kind of has this temptation is that obviously we know that what he's envisioning could never actually happen. But it's that key part where he realizes that even if that wasn't true, even if he could actually do that, even if he could put on the ring and make a paradise out of Mordor, it would still be wrong. That's a really profound truth because that's, I think what we miss so much in our effort to go change the world is this sense of, we want to get everything. We want to make everything better. And I think that's wrong. I think that the truth is to get your your one small garden of a free gardener all his need and do. Like that contrast that even the ability to go do even if that 
was within his grasp to do something that seemingly good would be wrong. And that tells us a lot because a lot of our efforts to change the world start at this macro level. You know, we want to elect the great leader who will make everything better. You know, we want to come up with the great idea that will win millions of people to Jesus. We want to, you know, come up with the best charity that will, you know, change people's lives all over the place. But I think that at least for 99.99999% of people, that's wrong. That stepping beyond your due, even with good intentions, is something that leads to chaos. And I think that changing the world, then, is something very fundamental. Because changing the world has to be focused on things that are actually within your control, not on all that stuff out there. I think trying to grasp the universe is so arrogant at the core of it. I think maybe that's the flaw that Sam recognized in his thinking is that there's an arrogance to that, even if what he did would be in some sense good. And that real change then begins at this very basic level. And I think that's the truth of Mother Teresa. Go home and love your family. Why? Not as just some dumb platitude, but because that's what's in your control. So what does this actually look like? I think it starts at that fundamental level. It starts at this kind of almost raw level of self. It starts with learning to be a good father, learning to be a good husband, learning to be a good man, learning to be a good woman. Those are even more fundamental than father, husband, mother, uh, wife. I, I mean, those are important, but even just that sense of get yourself to the point where you can see that you are a good man and learn what that means and live that out. I think Jordan Peterson has a, a lot of good advice in terms of how to do this. His, his kind of catchphrase that has developed around him is sort yourself out. And he starts with this idea. Uh, he was talking on Joe Rogan's podcast about the Occupy Wall Street protesters. And he said, there's these people out there and they want to go and reform the financial system and they can't even keep their rooms clean. And his point was that that's something really fundamental. And he, he, he brings this up in a lot of talks of go home and clean your room. Like if you can't do that, you're not prepared to go and change the world. Like start with this basic, dumb, almost pathetic level. And you've got to start by sorting things out there. So I can tell you a little bit about myself with this over the last uh, three, four months uh, that I've been listening to Peterson on this because that really hit home with me so because i can recognize a lot of this myself recognize like, what exactly this tendency to want to go do bigger things set mm -hmm. bigger goals but then all this kind of close stuff near to me is a mess okay and so i just thought like okay what's the most basic dumb thing that i could do different to sort out my life and it was cold out at the time and i realized every time i got home in my office i just threw my jacket on the floor Okay, so I'm going to hang up my jacket. Like, that's how basic and dumb I think you have to start with. And I'm going to do that, and I'm going to get disciplined at that. Okay, then I'm going to start cleaning up my office a little bit. And I'm going to, you know, work on keeping my desk clear. And right now, that's been my goal, is to keep my desk clear. And then it's like, well, I've got, I live on three acres, and so I have 
so much brush out there and it's this overwhelming project. Well, I'm going to rent a brush cutter and I'm going to go through that and I'm going to start doing this. And, and I've watched this process in myself of starting at this basic level and I've seen it start to change things inside of me at a more fundamental level in that. What is it? Yeah, I guess maybe you're hitting there. But what, what are you feeling different? I feel there's a sense of order that there wasn't before. There's a sense of. Let me back up. I feel like part of where this whole change the world mentality comes from is this sense of my life feels unmanageable, so I'm going to go and try and manage that hmm. out there. I, I feel like, just from my own, speaking from my own past experience and knowing that I've had that feeling, I want to go do something big. I want to make my life meaningful. I think it's the sense that I want to know that I didn't waste my time here on Earth, like that I right. did something that's that was worth it for me to be here yeah and i think that there's an anxiety about that especially in our generation like uh and in our time i mean when you're a peasant living in the 14th century and you're gonna die at 35 and you know there's wolves out there and you got to do the harvest or you're all gonna starve to death like there's a sense of basic purpose Mm there um when your life expectancy is 90 and you know you could some of the most devastating things that you can imagine can still be solved by the miracle of medicine and and science and everything and it's like there's so much we have to be grateful for but there's also this this purpose gap that i think enters into it yeah that's a good way to put it purpose because a lot of listeners will know my parents weren't married when they had me and in fact my dad uh, didn't even know that my mom was pregnant uh and so because of coming from that situation where uh in a sense i was an accident and at you know not in god's eyes but in my mom's eyes right uh yeah i think there was a a thing inside of me that i wanted to know that i am here for a reason it wasn't just an accident in the grand scheme that there is a purpose for me to be here yeah so what do you what about is that tie into what you're talking about ties in and i think that a lot of people, for various reasons, you are able to put some very concrete reasons to it, but I think a lot of people, even if they can't do that, there's this vague sense of that that's out there. And I think that the fuel of postmodernism, or the flames of postmodernism, or I don't know what metaphor I'm trying to use, postmodernism has made it worse in the sense that when there's this absence of value, there's no meaning there either. There's nothing to look inward. And I think even those of us who aren't postmodernists, we feel that because it's in our culture. And I think the answer to that, what is the purpose that we should be striving after? I think the purpose is to live well. And I think that sounds very small, but again, meditate on it, contemplate what that actually means. To live well, to be a good father, to be a good husband, to live out your masculinity or femininity in an authentic way. Those are good things. To be somebody who sorts out your life to the point where you can actually make a positive difference on other people around you. Not to say you just ignore people while you're doing this, but there is a sense of that um, you're going to be limited in what you can effectively do until you've sorted yourself out. To do that, to live well, to get to the point where you are 
able to humbly be that assured man who's not trying to change the world out of an anxiety, who's not trying to do it out of this sort of gap of purpose, but is doing it out of a place of strength because you've got your life sorted to the point where you know that you are living well. I think there's something very liturgical about it. I think we are liturgical creatures. Um, I think that in some ways it's easier to swallow from a liturgical perspective because at least speaking as a Catholic, like if you don't embrace this kind of basic repetition, you're going to go insane as a Catholic because you go to mass time after time after time and the same prayers are said and we loop our way through the same readings and it's the sense of go and do it again, go and do it again, go and do it again. And I think that same principle goes into our purpose for life with how to change the world. Don't charge out with some big noble goal and try and accomplish that before your energy wears out. Start the small thing, go and do it again, go and do it again, go and do it again, and then you will build from there. And what I wanted to close with is to describe what I think is one of the best illustrations of this I've seen, which is Andrei Tarkovsky's movie, his final film, The Sacrifice. And I think The Sacrifice captures this just absolutely perfectly. So The Sacrifice begins with two images. Over the opening credits, um, you see an image, the opening credits are projected over a close-up of Leonardo da Vinci's painting, The Adoration of the Magi. The Adoration of the Magi shows the Magi, the wise men, kneeling before Mary as she holds Jesus. And that's it. And then the opening credits end, and we get this, we see a father and a son, Alexander and his son, and uh, they're planting a tree. And Alexander begins describing to his son He tells him a story of a monk who planted a tree, and every day he was a scraggly little tree, and every day he would come and water it again and again and again. And then one day he looked, and he noticed that the whole valley that tree was in had blossomed and bloomed out because of the effect of this tree. And he says to his son that that's the purpose of life, is to find that one simple thing and do it faithfully day after day and that if everybody did that that would change the world so then the film goes on and we learn that alexander is somebody who is really wrestling with this kind of nietzschean crisis the question of god and he he's undergoing a crisis of faith himself and he doesn't know that he believes in god anymore and he has this extreme anxiety about it and the film continues to go on, and he's sitting there in his home with his family, and jets fly overhead, and he hears the whole house shakes, and they turn on the radio, and they realize that nuclear war has broken out. This is made in the 80s, so you have a lot of Cold War anxiety uh, coming into the plot, and it sends everybody into a panic. And Alexander then, as the film goes on, he breaks down at one point and he says to God, if you change this, if you undo this, I'm not even sure I believe in you, but if you undo this, I will destroy everything. I'll burn my house down. I will sacrifice all of that to you. I will leave my family. I'll do all, just please undo this. So some other things happen and then he wakes up and history has been undone. The nuclear attack didn't happen. And he sets out frantically burning down his house and essentially running around like a mad person trying to make good on his promise to God. And then the film ends where we see an image of his son carrying a pail of water and watering the tree that was planted at the beginning. And the message of the film is that that 
is the sacrifice, not what Ale- not Alexander's crazy bargain with God. What changed the world was the faithfulness to be able to go day after day after day and do the same thing again and again faithfully and live life well, and that that's what changed the world. Incredibly powerful film. Can't recommend it highly enough. And I think that's the answer to what do you do instead, is you don't run after messiahs. You don't frantically try and get the whole world in your grasp. You, you deal with yourself on this small scale. You, hand, you, you deal with this simple truth. You live well, and you let that impact you and those around you. And if we all do that, that will change the world, and not in a negative way. That will make it better. And that's what I have for this episode. That's awesome. So you earlier talked about some key steps you're taking in your own life to bring order to your own life. So what's next for you now? Oh, I mean, not necessarily what's the next thing you want to bring order to, but do you feel like now that you're organizing some of that stuff, do you have a better vision? Oh, yeah. Yeah, and it's even stuff, you know, just dumb stuff I've noticed. Like I got a, a cabinet that I just had a bunch of crap thrown in. It's just been in there for three years, mm-hmm. not longer. And I just clean. It took like five minutes to clean out. And it's like stuff like that, that you just let it fester there. And I was like, no, I don't want to do that anymore. Uh, so I have a list of things like that that I want to get to. Uh, in terms of spiritual uh, spiritual stuff, I'm bad at, at praying. And so what I decided is I'm going to you know, look, uh, I download a couple prayer apps uh, to my phone, and I found a morning prayer and an evening prayer, and I'm going to do those. And I started out, and I was like hitting about 50% you know, success rate on this. And then I've been doing this for like a month now and just kind of building up, building up, and now I'm at the point where it's like 90%. And I think that that's kind of what you have to do. And it's like in the past when I've tried to – change my prayer life it's like okay i'm gonna pray a rosary every day and do this every day and you have all these big extravagant goals and then you fall flat on your face with them and it's like no you got to start smaller than that that's how we are as people is we're not just trying to get yourself off of that initial emotion and excitement and hope you can get far enough before the gas runs out is a bad idea it's that starting small and discovering faithfulness at that level and then letting that build so if I'm hearing you correctly, I think the point of the episode as you presented it isn't that you're going to bring order to these areas in your life personally, and then you're going to set out and do something big for the world, but rather you're going to be managing your own world. And if everybody's managing their own world and, and bringing good things to that, then that will naturally spread. Is that correct? I think as you manage your own world, I would say yes if we define your own world as being broader than just yourself. Well, yourself and your family. Yourself, your family, as it brought your friends, your community, Mm -hmm. you know, let it broaden out like that. It's very similar to the Sam principle of of your one small garden. So I don't think it's a selfish thing in terms of just focus on yourself and and, uh, forget everybody else. I think that would be the wrong lesson to take away from there. It's about learn to be faithful for yourself and then let that blossom into something that impacts others in a genuine way. So is your ultimate plan to do these little things, hang up your jacket, clean up your yard, clean up your cabinet, then you'll start doing some things with your family? Like, do you already have some master plans? Like, when I... I don't. I, I don't. I intentionally don't have master okay. plans. Okay, but your plan is then family and then maybe church community or neighbors. Right. That kind of, so You're, that's kind of the and goal. And I think is that to th- those on. opportunities are always there. Yeah. And it's like, you know, 
part of the goal then is to be the type of person who can step into those things effectively. And it's not like you just ignore that stuff. Like I teach confirmation at my parish. It's not like, well, you know what? I'm going to hang this up for a few years till I can learn to keep my jacket on that well, hook. That's kind of what I was asking. I'm asking, is it the goal to gradually grow? So you're doing personal and then family and then maybe neighbors or church community and then keep on you know the the rings keep getting further and further away from the center which you know yeah not that we should say we're the center but you know as as we're talking about this organization uh so is it a gradual thing or is it okay if i do some things with my family but then also there's some things that i'll help with that church and there's some things yeah totally i mean i think it's more of that mentality of you got to step away from that anxiety of uh, I got to go have a purpose here. I got to have a go. Pur-. It's like no, it's about living well, and living well does has to mean just looking beyond yourself. But it's also about that recognizing that even while you're doing those things, you have to start at that center and grow out from there. Not that you neglect those things in the meantime, but recognizing that you want to get yourself to a point where maybe you're, you know. That three years down the road, four years down the road, okay, I'm still doing that stuff at church, but now I'm doing it a lot more effectively mm-hmm. because I've allowed this to grow out from the center. And now instead of just, you know, I'm doing those things, but now I'm actually doing them in a whole different way. Not that I neglected them before, but now I'm doing them at a deeper level. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, definitely. I just wanted to get some clarification on is it gradual or should we be hitting all the different areas? And, and you already mentioned prayer life. So, you know, when we're talking about ordering our own lives before we get to the family and the community and the church, that wraps into getting your relationship with God on track. And then, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So, whether it's your personal devotions or prayer or, right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Good. Yep. Good. So, so my challenge to all the listeners is to, Find something in your life that's maybe it's as small and dumb as hanging up a jacket. Maybe it's a room in your house. Maybe it's a section of a room that you're going to keep clean. Find something like that and start with it. That's your homework as a listener of this episode. Start sorting out your life. Find something like that and just stay faithful to it and see what happens. Grow from there. And it's also also kind of challenging listeners. I believe this is what you're doing is challenging listeners to not imagine that they have to make a big earth-shaking impact, but that by doing the little things, that will grow into something big. So you don't have to jump to, I've got to make an immediate big impact. It's something that will, like you were saying before, kind of blossom from everything else you're doing. Absolutely. All right, Ben. This is a pretty good one. Thank you. So I think that for the fourth one, when we circle around, I want to, Brian Kozier had asked me a question in the first episode when I talked about preserving uh, the humanities, preserving literature and stuff, he said, well, how does that actually work? And in my mind, I kind of worked through, okay, well, you got to get, we got to get this central conflict that's going on. That's the question of God. And then you got to get this sense of how you actually change the world and how that works. And now we can actually, I can actually answer his question. So whenever we do that in a couple months, I mean, we've got some other episodes planned, so that will be a little ways away. But when we get to that one, I'll finally be able to answer Brian's question. Yeah. And uh, we'll come full circle. Well, I think as 
I mean, this is pretty typical, uh, whether it's a sermon or you listen to a speaker, when they get to the pra- practical application, it does start to feel really motivating and inspiring. And so that's kind of how I feel right now, hearing you go through what are our personal challenges. I mean, yeah, just starting small and gradually letting it grow from there. That's a great way to change the world. Yeah. All right. Well, that's all from here. I'm Matt Anderson. And I am Ben Bono. And we're the Sci-Fi Christians signing off. Yeah, goodbye. And we're back, everybody. I hope you liked that episode, Ben. I know that, I mean, it wasn't just a favor of the listeners. I remember you feeling particularly proud of that one. Yeah, no, I, I was proud of that whole series. I think it's, you know, I've, I've done some really great work over the years. <laughs> that was some of your best. I continue to do great work. So, listeners, I can't remember if it was only four uh, episodes long in that series, but if you are interested in going back, and maybe I mentioned this during How Not to Change the World, but here are the episode numbers. 556 is Theology of Aesthetics. Episode 563 is The Question of God. Episode 567, we just heard. And episode 574 is uh, Aesthetics and the Transcendent. So that's all from here. I'm Matt Anderson. I'm Ben DeVono. And we're the Sci-Fi Christians signing off. Goodbye.